Good morning, Grace Point. We are so glad you're here with us today as we continue our meaning-making series. Before we jump into the sermon, I wanted to take just a couple minutes to say something about something that happened around a little over two months ago, and something that we're all learning about, or at least most of us are learning about, in the last week or so. I'm talking about the murder of Ahmaud Aubrey. It is almost like a kind of whiplash to look at the news and to see that a group of armed protesters can go into a Michigan state house and no one dies, and yet an unarmed black man can't run outside in Georgia without being murdered. And, and it's, it's unfathomable. And yet this is where we are. America has always had a white supremacy problem. It's our original sin. It's embedded into structures and systems and all sorts of things that, that people like me of privilege don't even notice until we really start looking at it and it's brought to our attention. So we recognize uh, that there's a lot of work to do and that we as a community can do some of that work um, and in talking about becoming anti-racist and, and those sorts of things, dealing with discovering and dealing with implicit bias and those things that are, are just carrying, we're carrying around and we don't even know it and we don't see it. And so we need to be aware of it. So here at Grace Point, we affirm that Black Lives Matter and we're going to keep saying so. And we affirm that we have much work to do um, to join uh, the long line of people who have been seeking to actually make Dr. King's dream a reality in the world. So when I was um, going through planning, when we were planning the series, one of the things I had done is I went to a, a Grace Point Facebook group and said, hey, we're thinking about a series on you know, how we try to create meaning and do you have any thoughts or any questions? And one of the questions, uh, it actually didn't pop into my brain and it was so insightful. I can't remember who asked it, but here's the question. How do we maintain a sense of identity when all the things that shape our identity are taken away? So, you know, you, you, you're in a job and that's part of your identity and you lose that job or you're, you're working and then there's a global pandemic and now you're working from home and your kids are not at school, they're at home. And suddenly now you're a 24 seven parent and you're struggling with work. Like, so, so not that I'm speaking from experience, um, but there, there are all these things that shape our identity and then something can happen, a lost job, an accident, an illness, Something happens, those things get taken away, and it's almost like we don't know what to do with ourselves. Like, where do we ground our identity when everything that has given us that identity and that has given us sort of a meaning, a reason to be, when those get taken away? How, what do we do? And actually, this reminded me of uh, a time earlier in my life. So, you know, close to 20 years ago, I was just out of college, and um, I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I got out of college. I wanted to go into ministry. I wanted to be a full-time pastor. That's what I knew um, that my life and energy should be directed at. And I'd had some experience. So when I was 19, I became the interim pastor of my home church. What were they thinking? And then in my senior year of college, I pastored another church um, in a very, really small church, Baptist church in a town near where I went to college. And that was a complete dumpster fire. Um, but I knew when I graduated college, I knew um, that I was going to go to seminary and I was going to pastor a church and that was going to be what it was. Um, and that did not happen. I mean, I expected I'll get out of school. I'll get a job at a church in a month. It'll be a mega church. I'll go to seminary and it's going to be, it's just not how it worked out. And so I ended up graduating college and moving down to Spring Hill to live with a really good friend of mine from college. He, he'd moved there. And so I moved down with him and for a year of my life, I probably didn't give two, three sermons that year. And I worked at um, a coffee shop for a while, and I worked at The Gap for a while, and then I ended up doing billing paperwork at a, uh, a car dealership. And so 
none of those things were on my plan, right? And so, so much of my identity had been built around this is who I am. I'm the preacher boy. I'm the guy who goes and gives sermons. I, you know, there was a time when I would travel anywhere to give a sermon. And now I'm sitting in Spring Hill, not doing the thing I love, not doing the thing I feel drawn to. And it, it just isn't available. And that year, <laughs> up to that point, that was the hard, one of the hardest years of my life because I just had no sense of who I was. If I'm not giving sermons, if I'm not leading group discussions, if I'm not doing pastoral work, what am I? Who am I? What do I give my energy to? And I, I loved, you know, free coffee and a discount at the gap, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't working for me. And I started to get angry and I started to get bitter. And I mean, if you're wondering how the story plays out, spoiler alert, uh, I did eventually become a pastor and I've been doing that for probably 15 or so years now. Um, as my only, it's my only real job I've had as an adult, as a real grown up adult as, as being a pastor. And I love it. I'm so grateful. I get to give my life to this. And I'm so grateful that that making the decision to do that has now limited grace point and being a part of this wonderful community. But as I look back on that year, it was painful in ways that I couldn't even articulate. And now I would like, if I could go back in time, I would say a lot of things to myself, like chill out, it's going to be okay. But at the time I was just sort of on a, a ship without any, a ship without a sail, a ship, a ship lost at sea. I was something and it wasn't, I wasn't enjoying it. And I just didn't even know who I was anymore. And I didn't know how to just, do I give up on this or do I keep going? Um, And it taught me a few lessons and they're lessons I continue to learn. I don't have this nailed down, but one of the most important lessons that I learned during that time, I didn't learn it as I went. It took growing up and looking back. Um, One of the most important lessons, I, I think that we tend to construct our identity backwards. What I mean is we, we sort of go into the world and we look for things that we are going to spend our time on, our energy on, our careers, people in relationship with us. We, we go into all these places and we try to collect all this stuff and turn it into an identity. And then when some of those things get taken away, right, when we lose those things, we lose that job, we lose that relationship or this other thing falls apart or we get sick, whatever happens, we, we essentially go through this loss. And not only have we lost those things that matter to us, we've also sort of become unmoored and we've lost our sense of usness. Like, who are we? Who am I? And what am I here to do? And I think for lots of us during this pandemic, even just the shifts that have happened have maybe made us struggle with that. Like, how do I, if I can't do all those things that make me me, then what am I going to do? Um, there's actually a, a story from the life of Jesus, from very early in the life of Jesus, that I, I think speaks to this idea of where are, where is our identity grounded. And it's a story that um, actually is in most of all the Gospels. Uh, it doesn't happen exactly um, the way it does in, uh, in it doesn't happen in John the way it does in the other three, but it's still referenced. So the first time we meet the adult Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we meet Jesus as an adult. And he is in the desert going to a guy named John the Baptizer uh, because John the Presbyterian was busy. (laughs) Dad jokes. Uh, So he goes to John the Baptizer and John is out in the desert leading this sort of um, like a a anti-temple movement, like an anti-establishment movement. And he's offering baptism as sort of a symbolic way of repenting and being transformed. And so Jesus goes out to John to be baptized. And this is a really interesting experience. And then what happens after Jesus is baptized is really fascinating. In Matthew 3, Matthew tells it like this, when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. 
what a story, right? With the theatrics of it. Now, it's interesting that this is not necessarily like it's said differently in other places, but in this particular telling, it's not that everybody sees this. This isn't sort of some announcement to the world. This is an announcement to Jesus. And I wonder how much of it came from the inside and not from the outside. That's a, that's a really fascinating thing to think about. So Jesus goes and he's, he has this experience after baptism of the heavens parting and the spirit of God symbolically resting on him. And then he hears this divine affirmation, you are my son, the beloved with you, I am pleased. You bring me joy, essentially. I am proud of you. Now, what is super confusing is that, I mean, Jesus hasn't done anything yet, right? When you, when you think of that sort of seal of approval, you, you would imagine that Jesus has been doing all kinds of stuff, but he hasn't. This is the first time we meet Jesus as a grown-up. He's done nothing remarkable that we know of that hinted that he might be the catalyst for a movement that would literally change the world. He's performed no miracles, no water to wine, no feeding of the 5,000, no raising of the dead, no walking on water, none of that stuff. He hasn't taught. He hasn't given a sermon. He hasn't told a parable. He's not amassed a group of followers. And yet in this moment, Jesus comes up out of the water and he hears the affirmation or he senses it. Or maybe it's coming from deep within him. You are my son, the beloved. I'm proud of you. You bring me great joy. Why is God pleased? Why is God pleased? What, is, what has Jesus done? Nothing remarkable that we know of. And yet God is pleased. But I think about this every time I read this story. I think about the fact that that's exactly how, if you have kids, that's probably exactly how you felt about them when they came in the world. And that's how I felt about mine. Just looking at them and look, looking at our oldest, the moment I held him for the first time, I knew my life was being changed. And he had done nothing. He could do nothing for himself. He couldn't feed himself. He couldn't change himself. He was literally dependent and for, on me and his mom for everything. Right? Everything. And he still is in some ways. Um, and yet I remember looking down at him and thinking, oh, you are the greatest human being who's ever humaned. Right? Like I remember having that sense of you're perfect you're beautiful, you're brilliant, you're everything. And he'd done nothing. He just showed up. And yet, holding him in my arms, I knew that this was my son, that he is the beloved, and he brought me great joy. And so this story is sort of this Jesus coming up out of the water God affirming him. You imagine Jesus would, what would he do next? He would go do all the things he's going to do, right? He's going to go start doing some miracles, start teaching some sermons, start telling some parables, start getting a group of followers together. But that's actually not what happens. He does that later. The very next move after baptism for Jesus is he goes out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. He eats nothing. And he has an experience known as the temptations. So Matthew chapter four, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now I know the devil language can get us all caught up. That, that sort of that mythical language. Don't, don't spend time on that unless you're just really into it. I think the point of this is Jesus goes to the desert and he's going through this sort of spiritual practice and this sort of maybe awakening, processing uh, his baptism experience. And the tempter comes and the first thing the tempter does, notice the language, the very first thing, if 
you are the son of God. Jesus has just had an experience in baptism. You are my son, the beloved. And he goes out into the desert and the first temptation, and actually all the temptations fall into sort of this struggle with identity is, are you the son of God? Are you really? Did God say that or did you make that up? Maybe you heard wrong. Maybe you're imagining this. Are you really the son of God? Okay, cool. Prove it. Prove that you're the son of God. Do a trick. Do a miracle, a little sign, a little wonder. Show us something, some razzle-dazzle. You've got to prove that somehow you have to prove to us that you really are the son of God. All three of those temptations in so many ways are grounded in sort of picking apart Jesus's identity. Are you really God's son? Prove it. Prove it. The tempter is essentially saying, prove that you deserve to be here. Prove that you're worthy of that title. Prove that you really are remarkable, unique, and special. The tempter is trying to get Jesus to tie his identity to his performance, right? He's trying to get Jesus to, to begin to question, did, did I, am I really the beloved? Is God pleased with me? Maybe, am I making all this up? And then you have the tempter, prove it, prove it, do a thing, show off. Let me see that you really are worthy of such accolades. Man, don't we have that tape playing in our head a lot of the time? We have this belief that we have to prove why we should get to be here, that we have to prove why we should be able to show up, that we prove that we're somehow worthy. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. His identity has been grounded in something larger, something stronger, something deeper, something more solid than his performance. He was the beloved and he trusted that. He trusted that he was the beloved of God. He trusted that God takes delight and joy in him. Don't we, don't we tend to construct our identity backwards? We go out looking for things to create an identity with and from, when in reality, everything that we need for our identity to be grounded and, and, and set within us is already in there. We have nothing to prove to anyone. We already are. I love this from Richard Rohr. He says it this way. There is nothing to prove and nothing to protect. I am who I am and it's enough. There's nothing to prove and there's nothing to protect. I am who I am. You are who you are. It sounds a little Popeye the Sailor Man-ish, but the reality is it's true. I am who I am, you are who you are, and it is enough. There is nothing to prove. But man, what, what happens to us is we hear that and, and we give intellectual assent to it, and then we sort of go back out into the world and try to form an identity out of all the things, all the accolades, all the praise, all the popularity, all the stuff. And what I learned that year of my life, when I was very young, I would look back and say to me now, like, you should have chilled out. It was a year. You taught you a lot. It was actually really good for you. What I wish I'd have known at the time was I, the part of my misery was that I was trying to create an identity out of all this external realities and relationships and, and opportunities. And I was ignoring sort of what was already true about me. That the moment I entered the world, the divine voice says, you're my son, you're beloved, and I'm really happy about you. One of our kids says that a lot. She'll ask if we're happy to her. She'll come up and say, are you happy to me? Of course, yes, we're happy to you, right? 
we enter the world and we say, God, are you happy to me? And God says, yeah, yeah, you're my son. You're my daughter, the beloved with you. I am deeply pleased. What if we trusted that this is the truest thing about us? Not the, not the performance, not the popularity, not the parade, not all that. What if we trusted the truest thing about us is that we are children of God with nothing to prove? We, we don't need to prove why we should be here. We don't need to prove why we deserve a seat at the table. We don't need to prove. Our existence is the proof. We are here. We are children of God, deeply beloved, and God finds joy in us. One of the things I've also learned as I started doing the thing I wanted to do with my life, I became a pastor, is that I started getting kind of addicted to people's praise. And so if I felt like I gave a bad sermon or if I felt like somebody didn't like it or somebody had a negative comment, it really would be such a struggle for me. And actually, um, I, I imagine it was really frustrating for, for Carla. I'll, I don't imagine. She's told me. Uh, it was really frustrating for Carla that often after sermons, I would quiz her about the sermon in the car and nothing. If she said it was good, it was never enough. Like I couldn't believe it. Uh, my 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 feeling after church, how, how I carried myself after church, how I felt, everything was sort of this roller coaster of how well I thought I did. Did I deliver well? Did I perform well? Did people like it? Was it smart? Was it funny? Did it change somebody's life in an instant? Like all that stuff was so wrapped up for me. And um, sort of the part of my identity was I did good today, right? I did well today. That was such a part of my identity. And having to learn that actually, even if the sermon bombs, if this one right now bombs, falls flat, uh, then it's okay. It, it, it's, it's okay because it's not me. It's a thing I'm doing. It's a thing I love. It's a thing I'm grateful for to be able to do. But every preacher lays an egg every now and then, right? It's just, it's just true. Even the best. So if the best do it, all of us will. And there are going to be moments when I don't feel like I perform well. And learning that my identity isn't wrapped up in how well I preach or how well I pastor or how well I anything, that I have something beyond that, that I am a beloved child of God, there's, there's another place to ground yourself so that when it, when it falls completely flat, when no one laughs at the joke, which I noticed on the Grace Point uh, bingo card, lots of people, if you saw that online, lots of people didn't laugh at a joke of Josh's. I'm not sure why, because they're pretty funny. Um, but that's between you and the, the Lord. Um, <laughs> but it, it, so if I could go back to 22, 23 year old me just out of college, wanting to be a pastor, feeling unfulfilled, feeling like I had no identity, I would, I would listen probably just say to myself, look, you just got to breathe. You just got to breathe. If you never give another sermon in your life, you are who you are. At the core of your being, you're, you're beloved. You're the child of God. And that's true for us. That's true for all of us. That's true for you. No matter how we perform, no matter, no matter whether it's beautiful or, or difficult and painful, no matter what, you, at the core of who you are, are a beloved child of God. I love this from Henry Nouwen. Over the, he says, over the years, it's a, it's a longer quote, but I, it's really worth it. Over the years, I have come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation. But their seductive quality often comes from the way they're part of a much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we have... Uh, when we have come to believe the, in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. 
The real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I am rejected, left alone, or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I am nobody. My dark side says I am no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Isn't that what Jesus was being tempted with? You can show off and prove yourself. That'll bring you power, right? That'll bring you popularity. That's going to bring you success. That, that's If you want to have a really good career, then you, you show me that you can do this and everything is yours. And yet, Jesus doesn't. Why? Because his identity is grounded. He's, he doesn't reject himself. He trusts the, the voice that spoke into him, that he is the beloved son, that he brings God joy. He trusted it, and it formed the core of who he was. That same voice has spoken over all of us, in, from, wherever that voice is located. It comes from all of us. It is the truest thing about us. So may we hear and trust that voice that calls us the beloved. And if we need to tape that on a mirror, if we need, on the bathroom mirror, if we need to, to put it all over the house on sticky notes, if we need to get that tattooed somewhere so that we'll remember it, there is nothing to prove. There is nothing to protect. I am who I am, and it's enough. I am who I am. You are who you are. I am the beloved. You are the beloved. May we trust this. May we begin to live from that place as we move into the world.